talking more yet. Talking. Talking. are talking. We are talking oh, really? a lot. A lot of talkers. I would agree with that. This podcast <laughs> is called Erase the Filter. Erase the Filter. Erase the Filter. The brothers Tasselmeyer, Andrew and Michael, grew up in the Baltimore area. By late summer of 2012, they had both graduated from college and were living in separate cities in the Northeast United States. Through the magic of the internet, geography didn't stop them from making music together. Moving on from more conventional dabbling in post-rock, the duo began working on a collection of ambient tracks, which was released by a friend on a very short-run cassette under the name Hotel Neon. Over a year after that release, they were contacted by Ian Hoggood, who re-released the album on his Home Normal label in Japan. Shortly after that, they met Stephen Kemner, who joined the band for their second release, an EP called Remnants. And since then, the trio has released two more full-length albums, including a brand new collection called Means of Knowing. Hotel Neon is definitely on the rise in the international ambient drone and soundscape scene. But today I want to focus on another album by the brothers, the first full-length self-titled release of a new project called Grey Acres. In a way, it's a throwback to the first Hotel Neon record, when it was only the two of them. Here's Michael and Andrew Tasselmeyer on the relationship between these two projects, Hotel Neon and Grey Acres. The Hotel Neon pre-Steven was very loose. There really wasn't very a whole lot of slow. structure or thought. And uh, Steven, what, when he joined, that kind of it kind of in put this like structure to what we were doing. I think he mm-hmm. has a much more melodic ear, I think, and sensibility, and his his input is a little more like less abstract than what Andrew and I are doing. And so I think in gray acres, you kind of hear the, like the deconstruction of like a remnants or a context. You'll hear it on Steven's solo stuff too. I mean, the guy can just, he has an ear for melody that Mike and I don't. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And it's very apparent then. I mean, Mike and I, you know, we could spend our lives awash in static and reverb and, you know, hear nothing come out of that and be totally fine with it steven brings the structure steven is uh he has a great producer's kind of ear for that the 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 album is fantastic was it something that it was it something that you were working on parallel to the last hotel neon output or the uh gray acres yeah how does gray acres how does it fit into what you do with hotel neon like especially because it's the two of you yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah (laughs) it and the timing of our releases has been such that it's typically like one every year that we are ready with um and we churn out an album a year it seems like not by design but just in the period between context release um and sort of that late summer Mm -hmm. doldrums you know after we had gotten back from tour and just kind of winding down um we all kind of just decided we're just going to work on some different stuff um just okay so that makes sense yeah yeah and uh Steven at the time, actually, I think the same week that we yeah. were writing Gray Acres, he was down in uh, New Mexico with Andy Othling writing a new album that they're going to come out with soon. Oh. Um, so you'll hear more about that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah, it just happened to be just that late summer, eh, whatever, we'll throw something together. And it ended up being, yeah, very much a hearkening uh, back to that first Hotel Neon Sound just by virtue of it being me and Mike. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we like kind of uh, self-disparaging here talking about like how it's like very formless and 
um, less yeah. structured. Yeah. But like that was also very intentional. I mean, we were kind of trying to think less and do less and just sort of let the music be a little more reactive rather than planned out. Yeah. And because even though to the average listener, Hotel Nia may seem like this abstract wash of sound, there is a lot of very... I mean, there are parts in those songs that we all know and have down pat. And it's mm-hmm. it's a very, you know, we're not like, that's not improv. That is not, it's very thought out and it's very, very methodical. And, yeah. And I, so I yeah. knew that the first time I saw you play at the Art Gallery Vox Populi in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. Because I, yes. I, I had that impression, of course, right? It's, you don't know how much of that was in the moment and that you mm-hmm. just do st- sort of structured improv, then I would hear these parts mm-hmm. yeah. and I yeah. recognize these. And that's a beautiful thing with this kind of music. Oh yeah, I think absolutely. I don't know how common that would be with, with pure drone soundscape artists. It's right. probably not to be honest. And yeah. I think um, it sounds a little arrogant to say, I guess, but I mean, we're very proud of what we do. We yeah. are very um, committed to this music and we feel like we all know exactly what we want to sound like and what we want to do with each record that we write and yeah the only way to kind of stand out or to even allow us to play those shows is to think with an audience in mind Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that's really the differentiator there between Hotel Neon and Grey Acres is Hotel Neon is a little more intentional I would say but that's great from a creative perspective that Mm -hmm. you can have uh, both and have that balance absolutely That's The Maps They Held, a track by Grey Acres from their debut self-titled full-length album, available now on the Sound and Silence label, who released some incredibly beautiful short-run CDRs of the project. So I'd be really interested if each of you could tell me um, emotionally what this kind of music, um, and you can focus on the Grey Acres side or the Hotel Neon side or both, but what does this ambient soundscape drone music do for you as an artist? Mm Mm-hmm. I, I would say I think we live in a world that is just going very quickly and we're inundated every day with so much design, um, whether that's like looking at our phones and seeing perfectly planned like apps and icons and like all these visual elements that are very planned out and we're inundated with that every single day. And so to kind of get wrapped up in an art that is, I think less structured and a little more reactive. Like when we're making this music, there's all these little moments, whether it's like a tape fluttering or a delay reverbing and all these little things going on that are so subtle. And that is a very stark contrast to like a lot of what we experience on a day to day life where it's just really fast paced and like high energy. And I don't know, it's sort of a reaction I think to a lot of that just chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'd echo a lot of that. I think for me, um, ambient and drone and soundscape music is, uh, to me, it's very emotional because it is so personal. Um, it, 
to what we were talking about earlier, you could show up at a Hotel Neon show, have no idea who we are, and um, you know it would sound, uh, it could sound powerful, it could sound uh, depressing, it could sound uh, uplifting, joyous. It it, it kind of goes back to that whole context thing. Um, that's what we tried to explore on that last album. But uh, the context that you are in when you hear the music shapes the entire experience. And so I think it's really exciting to um, not be told what to think by lyrics or not be, you know, influenced by, uh, you know, dramatic song titles or whatnot. I mean, the music can be whatever you want it to be. And I think that's the most powerful thing about this music is that it means something different um, to everybody who hears it, uh, depending on where they are, what they've been through. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, a, it's an amazing experience. It's really experiential music. There's also this physical element to it. You know, there is, it is very interesting to like just sit still for an hour at a time mm-hmm. and listen to this extremely slowly evolving music wash over you and i mean some not to get too like mystical or whatever but there is something i think (laughs) that happens to you in the over the course of that listening experience when you really sit down and just commit to like listening to something rather than going to a show to be like entertained or whatever and that's great and nothing against Entertainment, entertaining shows. you know but yeah. it's like <laughs> but it, this is a very different experience in that you you know you get out of it what you put into it and it's everybody comes into it with something different so it's it's interesting to just be a part of that experience and like sit down and just see what happens yeah you know? mm-hmm. well said thanks <laughs> I had the privilege of hosting Gray Acres for a rare live performance at the sixth floor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, back in March of 2018. Here's a taste of what happened that night. Links to the music of Gray Acres and Hotel Neon in the show post. And be sure to check out episode one of the podcast for a conversation with Andrew Tasselmeyer about their recent performance at the 24-hour drone at Basilica Hudson in Hudson, New York. Speaking of ambient music, I had the incredible opportunity to spend the evening of February 3rd, 2018 with my friend Adam in New York City's Fridman Gallery. We attended a live performance by two masters, Taylor Dupree, founder of the experimental and minimalist ambient label 12K Records, and Stephen Vitiello, a sound artist and electronic musician from Richmond, Virginia. The duo took us on a sonic journey through a collage of different sounds. Adam and I downloaded our thoughts after the show while walking through Greenwich Village on that bitter cold February night. It was sublime. I mean, you've never seen Dupree. No, no. So, uh, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. And I'm glad I didn't because everything that I 
experienced was in the moment. Totally in the moment. I felt like at first it was very chaotic and I, I wasn't sure I was going to, I wasn't sure I could get there. Right. And it was, um, it was interesting how it's just so gradually came into focus. Yeah, it kind of lost itself for a while there, right? And at the end, especially when he had that that nice melody running in the loop, yeah, right. That 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 kind of brought it all together. Yeah. But it was amazing how subtle they were able to make it form. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a common concept, right? Right. Chaos turns into order. Right. Well, you've got to right. It's like phase, right? You got to find your yeah where you're spinning together, and okay, now we found we found something. Let's lock into that loop. But, but it, it didn't seem like that came until late. Right. Right. I felt like I was listening to two people playing until it synced. Right? Is that what your experience yeah. was? Yeah. And it was, uh, but the, it happened so gradually and with such subtlety that it was almost, it was almost like I, I had to then focus. It's like I had to do the same thing as a listener was come oh, in to clear, you know, yeah. find the clarity myself. Right. Like they may have been in sync long before I was in sync. You think so? As a, for me. Okay. And then I, I caught it. I caught the patterns, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, remarkable. These sounds from the evening were captured and streamed over the internet by Standing Wave Radio. It would take decades to understand that when my brother fell off a bridge and so massively broke his crown, I not only lost him, I lost myself. I had shaped myself around his example in some ways against it for so long that when he wrecked his way, I wrecked mine. While he drank, smoked, screwed, tried everything, I sat in my ivory tower, meditating, writing often sad love songs, and drinking herbal tea. Even so, it was his lead I was following as he hacked his way through the forest, and I was grateful for that lantern glinting ahead amid the looming trees. So when he fell and damaged his brain, and I lost my brother, my leader, my model, I plunged into a vertigo that, so it seems now, spun me directly toward the Church of Scientology. The idea that Scientology might offer answers may have been planted the day I attended a seminar given by a famous acting teacher. By this time, winter 1976, my brother and friends had formed the League of Theater Artists. Exploiting Manhattan's passion for raw, original, off, off, off Broadway theater, we were going about creating it in storefronts and basements, trucking props and set pieces around the streets and even subways of New York. In that group, often spearheading activities, was Kate Kelly, a red-haired, vivacious beauty. I envied Kate's certainty about being an actor, with what sometimes seemed like conflicting interests and foci required by songwriting, theater, and writing. It was easy to worry that I was pursuing the wrong path. And Kate was always on the lookout for ways to better her craft. 
She studied with the legendary teacher Uta Hagen, and with Kate's encouragement, I auditioned for and was accepted into that class as well. She often invited me to join her for movement workshops or acting seminars. One morning, she phoned with such an idea. This teacher's famous for finding acting problems, she said. We're too late to sign up to perform a scene, but at least we can watch him work with others while they perform theirs. We met up outside a studio on the west side and pretty much tiptoed into the space. A palpable, almost cathedral-like hush permeated the room. The acting area was an empty square created by rows of chairs. Into this square stood a thick-set man who radiated charisma. He made jokes about being a New York Greek now living in Los Angeles, how glad he was to be back where there is weather. Settling into a chair, he said, First scene. Two actors moved into the space, took a moment to get situated, and began to speak. The teacher watched for just a few minutes before getting to his feet. Why are you talking like that? He said to the man. Like what? The actor said. As if you have your teeth clenched. Why are you doing that? The woman in the scene melted into the audience. The actor began visibly to quiver. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. The teacher imitated him, not unkindly, making his jaw immovable and talking through and over it. As soon as he did, we saw what he'd observed and we had not. There was a bit of laughter flattened by a look from him. The actor flushed. I don't want... Come here. As the teacher held out a hand, a big paw, the room seemed to darken and focus around the acting space. It's as if someone has hold of you, your jaw, the teacher said. The actor backed up a few steps, shaking his head. It's just the fall I took when I was skiing a few years ago. I had to have stitches. The teacher studied him. Before that, the room was silent. Tears pooled in the actor's eyes. Again, he shook his head. Before that, the teacher said again, just braces. I had to have braces like we all do when I was 12 or so. The teacher reached a hand and took hold of the actor's jaw. In front of us, the actor became a boy, and the boy let him. Before that, the teacher moved the chin in his hand gently from side to side. It's as if someone has hold of you. Does someone have hold of you? The boy began to cry, also to nod. The teacher released his jaw and waited. Just like you did, the actor finally said. He was weeping. She'd hold my chin and force the spoon in and I'd try to keep my mouth shut because I didn't want it. The teacher studied him. Let's be sure to talk later, he said. Next scene. The acting problems unearthed in the next few scenes weren't as dramatic, but we could see they were holding the actors back in some significant way. That was amazing, Kate and I raved as we joined the group bumping its way out of the room. Someone next to us said, You do know that guy's a Scientologist. No, we said. That stuff he was doing? That Scientology. Horrified, Kate and I looked at each other. As one, we shrugged. It was still amazing. And it was. He seemed to have located a buried memory that not only appeared to be holding the actor back from a successful career, but that might be affecting his whole life. I don't remember being aware of this teacher's name, Milton Katselis, 
But less than two years later, after I'd fled Manhattan for Los Angeles, I almost immediately found my way, at the time it seemed like mere coincidence, to his acting class. Flunk Start, Reclaiming My Decade Lost in Scientology is the new memoir from author Sands Hall. Sands is also the author of the novel Catching Heaven and a book of essays and writing exercises called Tools of the Writer's Craft. She lives in Nevada City, California. More from Sands and her new work in an upcoming episode. This is Jason Mundock. Thanks for listening to Erase the Filter. Show notes can be found at erasethefilter.com. And if you have feedback about the show, feel free to email me at jmundock, J-M-U-N-D-O-K, at gmail.com. And always remember, open your mind, be yourself, erase the filter.